Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Ellis. Well, good morning. Good morning. And the top story, of course, this morning that everyone is uh, talking about is the Fiscal Responsibility Act. And that did pass in the U.S. House of Representatives last night uh, with actually uh, a lot of Democrat support as well. And that has been very concerning to conservatives and Republicans because there was uh, overwhelmingly bipartisan report uh, support for the Fiscal Responsibility Act, um, which, of course, uh, is the debt ceiling a really bipartisan agreement between uh, President Biden, Speaker McCarthy, uh, which really was the agreement between the Republicans and the Democrats to deal with um, this looming debt issue. And so the question that we have been talking about on uh, this program, as well as um, I think really throughout AFR, is how do conservatives approach this and what do we think about it? Um, Well, I think my good friend, um, U.S. Congressman Mike Johnson, actually put this really well in a statement that he put out last night. He did vote in favor of uh, the Fiscal Responsibility Act, and he said this, Uh, I voted in favor of the Fiscal Responsibility Act this evening to prevent the first ever default on our country's debt. We are in a dangerous time. We were presented with only one bill and we simply had no choice. The impacts of default would be like nothing we've ever seen. Experts agree America's credit rating would sustain a painful reduction. Our currency would be irreparably damaged. A deep and lengthy recession could be triggered, interest rates would rise, incomes would decline, retirement accounts would be drained, and hardworking families who are already struggling would be hit hard. The bill passed tonight makes meaningful, takes meaningful steps toward restoring fiscal sanity, something Washington has avoided for decades. Among other things, it imposes sensible work requirements for wealth, welfare programs, streamlines the broken uh, permitting process that delays important projects and increases taxpayer costs and enacts caps to cut more than $2 trillion in federal spending. Indeed, the bill represents the largest deficit reduction measure in U.S. history. Some of my closest friends and fellow conservative colleagues have objected that the bill does not go far enough, and I certainly agree. However, because we Republicans currently control only one House of Congress, and to avoid default, our options were ultimately limited to either allowing the passage of a quote-unquote clean debt ceiling increase or extracting as many concessions and reforms as we could in exchange for an increase. We had to pursue the latter. While President Biden and Senate Democrats ignored their responsibilities throughout this process, House Republicans refused to play politics with this issue. We are convinced America's debt is the single greatest threat to our nation's security and stability, and it is our duty to reduce the size and scope of government and return to fiscal responsibility before it's too late. I look forward to building upon these initial efforts. Uh, that is Congressman Mike Johnson's statement, which um, which I think 
makes perfect sense, but a lot of the members of the Freedom Caucus uh, disagreed, his fellow members, and also our good friend, uh, Representative Corey Mills, who joins me now. So, um, Corey, first, your reaction to uh, the statement from Congressman Mike Johnson and, you know, this kind of uh, bind that Speaker McCarthy, Congressman Johnson, and others say that uh, the House was in, that we really had no choice. Well, I, I, I really respect uh, both Speaker McCarthy and uh, Mike very much. Uh, you know, I, 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 certainly I'm not directing it towards anyone, but I don't just uh, agree whatsoever when it says that it's an either-or option. Um, you know, the bill that we passed in the House for the Limit Save Grow was a very conservative, very good debt ceiling increase. It would have increased this by about $1.47 trillion. Uh, it would have been a one-year with $1.2 trillion in clawbacks. Uh, things like the 85,000 or 87,000 IRS agents would have been rescinded. Uh, the executive order that Joe Biden put in place, that was for $500 billion in tuition and bailout, would have been rescinded. Uh, additional COVID and pandemic money would have been rescinded. Uh, so it was a really good bill that also had great permit reforms. Again, you know, it's not just about cuts and spending. It's about growth in our actual domestic production. And that's really what the, the key has been since you look at what the 118th Congress did with H.R. 1. H.R. 1 was about domestic energy production. And so the 87 permit reforms that was actually in the Limit Save Growth Bill would have also ensured that NEPA and others could not block our capabilities for trying to get economic growth and prosperity back into the United States. What we ended up doing, though, is that instead of getting 87 of the permanent reforms required for domestic growth, if you look at the bill that just passed, there was only four permanent reforms, many of which will not actually support and help our oil and gas industry. Um, there, there's just such a difference between the two. And the, the, the thing that I found to be a huge fault is I think that we could have taken this a lot further to the edge, and I think that Biden and the Democrats would have actually acquiesced on quite a bit. But I also think that the option should have been not to have the House do all the heavy lifting. We passed our bill. We should have pushed this over to the Senate. And if Chuck Schumer or the Senate Democrats didn't want to do their job, guess what? That's really on them. And so what we don't want to do is, is that we don't want to saddle Americans with 4 to $6 trillion in additional debt with almost zero ability to try and cap uh, or actually prevent any additional inflationary spending under the Biden vice presidency. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy to go into the details of what the comparison and contrast is between the limit save growth and this new bill that's just come about. Um, but they're, they're not even an apples to apples. It is literally a completely different bill. So even operating under the auspice that Limit Save Grow was a negotiation and this is what we came to, that's not true at all. We literally have a completely different bill than what we started from. Well, and, and I'm talking with Representative Corey Mills, and you know what I'm hearing from uh, Speaker McCarthy and uh, Congressman Johnson and others is that um, you know this was passed with the understanding that uh, the, the Senate was on board and that the White House was on board as well. And so this was kind of a multi-phased uh, negotiation that wasn't going to take the approach that uh, to, to basically strong arm the Senate and say, you know, here's what we're giving you and risk at all, you know, the Democrats holding a hard line and saying, well, then fine, we'll just go into default because Republicans see that as really not an option. So, um, so I mean, I, I, I'm wondering your perspective on that. Go ahead. Sorry. 
No, I was saying the Democrats, they don't see default as an option, the same as Republicans didn't see default as an option. This was a financial game of, of chicken. And what we should have done is what the our government is intended for, which is to have a lower and upper chamber be able to pass back and forth a bill, setting forth certain concessions and other amendments and agreements, whereby we eventually come to a workable deal that um, we can sign as a Congress to send to the executive branch. That's not what happened. And in fact, the Senate was very smart in, the, in, in, in their ability to basically just remain neutral and kind of say, hey, you know what? You figure it out. I mean, even McConnell and Schumer told McCarthy at one point in the White House, whatever you and the president agree to, we're good with. So they kind of removed themselves from the process in its entirety. But again, the, the, the issue with this bill, you know, where we're acting like it's a very good bill that rescinds and saves so much money, it's just not true. And, you know, I'm one of those that I'm very principled in the idea that if, if something's in a bill, I'm going to be very honest with the American people about what is or what isn't in the bill. And so, you know, just let me point out just a couple of key things here that are, that are extremely troublesome and should be troublesome to every American, which is that, you know, again, the key element of this bill was to get us to domestic production growth. We wanted permit reform. We had 87 permit reforms in the Limit Save Grow. In this new bill, we have four. We wanted to try and claw back the unnecessary funding that's just sitting out there and that's not being utilized properly. That was supposed to be around $1.2 trillion that we call back. In this bill, we get tens of billions. We looked at a $1.47 trillion increase in Limit Save Grow. In this bill, it doesn't have a spending cap on mandatories. So they put this system in place called PAYGO, which in the way it's set up on this current bill, it's a bit of an accounting gimmick. People think that by a PAYGO, you have to actually you know, cut other types of funding to be able to reallocate this type of funding. That, that's that's, that's kind of not how this works. And in fact, the OMB director, who is one that is responsible for the PAYGO mechanism, not only does he work for Joe Biden, but he actually has two waivers that he can give if a project needs certain types of exemptions to accelerate delivery or accelerate uh, certain programs. He can essentially waive the PAYGO mechanism that's in place. The other thing is, is that we had in our uh, limit save grow, and I think that this is good, not just because of President Biden, but I think for any future president as well, we had it where there was a law, a statute, that would have prevented any president from utilizing an executive order to try to go ahead and do things like the tuition bailout. In this bill, it doesn't actually have that in there anywhere. So that's been totally stripped out and removed, which means that the nearly $180 billion, roughly $4.3 billion per month, that it costs American taxpayers with regards to not having the revenue coming off the tuition reimbursements and things like this, which is uh, it's kind of like a moratorium at this stage almost, that, that's going to continue on right now for an indefinite period. And so there, there's no ceiling on this, just an actual timeline. So instead of having like our $1.47 trillion increase where we could have come back and revisited this in a year to say, hey – this is working. Our domestic growth production is, is you know, starting to get to where we want, et cetera. We don't have that. This basically just says, hey, this bill is good until January 1st, 2025. So well, this also carries Joe Biden through his presidency. 
Right. And and I think that a lot of people are, are concerned about that. And certainly the comparison, as you're describing this, um, you know, the Limit, Save, Grow Act was better. So why, in your opinion, was, was that abandoned then for the Fiscal Responsibility Act? To be completely honest with you, I do not know and I don't understand how we got rolled the way we did. I mean, look, even if you look at our social and welfare program reform, I mean, this new bill basically has program reform in there that sunsets in 2030, but also it talks about increasing SNAP and TAMPS for those who are homeless, excuse me, um, for those who are, are homeless. But if you look at the definitions of homeless, this will also incorporate some of that money that would be going towards illegals who are here as well. And so this is the type of thing that needs to be explained and understood to the American people. And even when we were in conference, this was mentioned by uh, Representative Austin, and he gave the description. He explained why this was kind of an arbitrary and vague opening for this type of abuse. And it was like, oh, well, you know, if that happens, it's probably only going to be 0.0006% of, you know, the people who would utilize it. And it should be 0.0000%. You know, we have to be good stewards of taxpayers' money. And so there's a, a multitude of you know, issues and, and, and arbitrary broad language in this that essentially opens us up to the continuation of the D.C. dance, which is to overspend, overspend, overspend. You know, that's not what I came to Congress for. I came for fiscal responsibility. And I personally was very proud of the Limit Save Grow Act. And I can tell you that I would never vote for a bill such as the one that just went through the House last night. Well, um, Corey Mills, uh, Representative Corey Mills out of the state of Florida, we appreciate everything that um, you're doing to bring sanity to Washington. And, you know, this um, this is troublesome in the sense that, you know, it it seems like the Republican Party is kind of divided on this. And certainly the vote reflected that last night where, um, you know, some people who we would we would respect and trust um, in Washington are saying this was the only option. And then, you know, people like you and and, um, other members of the Freedom Caucus. Are, are saying, you know, we could have done better. Um, but ultimately, this is what we have. So in just the last like 30 seconds that I have with you here, um, what's, you know, what's the next step then? Uh, do you see that there is an opening to at least getting something uh, done and building on the Fiscal Responsibility Act? Well, I mean, let me just go ahead and toss this out, by the way. It was not just individuals such as myself and the Freedom Caucus. There was a plethora of just standard conservatives there. And if you look at the numbers, this should tell the American people everything they need to know. When more Democrats voted for this bill than Republicans, that's not a Republican bill. That's a Democrat bill. And- or at least bipartisan. All right. Well, Corey Mills, thanks so much. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. And I think a lot of uh, Christians specifically and conservatives were very concerned to see uh, Chick-fil-A going woke. This is, of course, God's chicken, right? And this is, uh, this is at least according to our good friend uh, Todd Starnes and others. But uh, Chick-fil-A 
is now committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. They have a vice president of DEI, and they released a statement on their website explaining that their corporate purpose is to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us, to have a positive influence on all who come into contact with Chick-fil-A. Apparently, that also means succumbing to this uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, programming from the woke. So joining me now is presidential candidate and my good friend Vivek Ramaswamy, who also wrote the book Woke Inc. So Vivek, I have to ask you th- this question that you know we've been talking about on this show for months. Um, why do corporations care more about DEI than they do their own customer base? And in this instance, a Christian, openly Christian corporation like Chick-fil-A, this makes no sense. Yeah, Jenna, you're right. It makes no sense, but it makes no sense for different reasons on different occasions. A lot of times what you see from public companies is coming from top-down pressure from large institutional shareholders like BlackRock and Vanguard foisting that onto publicly traded companies. But the Chick-fil-A case is a different case, right? So that shows that's not the only thing going on. Part of it is that we now live in a broader culture that teaches you to apologize, that teaches us to apologize for who we are and what we stand for. And that then becomes to be a personal conflict of interest between the people who are running the company and their personal social aspirations about how they wish to be perceived versus what the right thing is actually to do for their institution in the case of a company, how they can most effectively serve their customers. And so I think that part of the story is absolutely financial in corporate America, especially amongst publicly traded companies. But Chick-fil-A is the kind of case that teaches us it's not 100% just financially driven. A lot of this is psychosocial cultural pressure on human beings that submit to the will to apologize rather than the will to actually continue to stand for who we really are. And it's it's really sad, and I do agree with you, of course, that there is so much cultural pressure. Um, and what really is the incentive for corporations to have a, a, a one of these DEI scores or even care about the human rights campaign and how they monitor some of these companies? I mean, why the opt-in if it isn't a financial reason? I mean, is it just cultural pressure? Or is there some other kind of benefit for opting in? Well, I think for most of the publicly traded companies, for most large brands that you know in this country, there's absolutely a financial incentive. Not to the corporation, though, Jenna. Because remember, corporations are run by people for the people who run those corporations. So many companies across the country today, their executives, the CEOs, the CFOs, etc., are now compensated not just on traditional value-oriented metrics like shareholder return, but are also compensated based on what they call ESG factors, environmental, social, or governance factors. So part of the CEO's pay, the bonus, the stock option grant that they get is expressly tied to ESG scores. What is an ESG score? What goes into a social score? The DEI metrics, the CEI metrics, the corporate equality index metrics, the diversity, equity, inclusion metrics, all of that rolls up into the S of ESG. So it quite literally determines how CEOs and CFOs get paid. And so those human beings respond to their own personal incentives 
even though it doesn't necessarily have to do with helping the company as a whole. Why does it not have to do with helping the company as a whole? If it had to do with helping the company as a whole, they would just be they would just be compensated based on the same things they've always been compensated on, which is total shareholder value creation. But now they're including these separate factors precisely because these other factors wouldn't be taken into account if their own objective was just to serve their customers and make money. So that's the reality of where we are today, Jenna, is that there's a departure of incentives between the CEOs, the actual executives, and what's in it for them versus what's actually in it for the company. Now, why are they compensated based on those ESG scores? And that's a legitimate question to ask. And that then comes back to BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, and other financial institutions who profess to be the shareholders of these companies, foisting those ESG scoring metrics as part of executive compensation on behalf of shareholders. That then begs the question of why BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard are doing it. And the answer then traces back up to states like California and New York and their pension funds, CalPERS, and Canadian provinces and Western European districts that are investing their pension funds, government actors, saying that they won't let BlackRock or Vanguard manage their money unless they adopt these ESG commitments. So if you keep pulling the string all the way up the chain, it still leads back to the place you'd expect, governmental political pressure. But they disguise it through multiple chains of private avatars doing their bidding that deceive most of the public into thinking that this is the invisible hand of the free market when, in fact, it's the invisible fist of government lurking behind the scene most of the time. Wow. And and that is so discouraging, I think, for anyone who is a free market capitalist and who wants to see um, these kinds of pressures cease. And so you're a presidential candidate running for office. What are the solutions then uh, to get the big fist of government out of uh, putting their fist, not just their thumb on the scale um, of all of these corporations going woke? So I think it's a it's a whole portfolio of solutions, and not all of them come through the government, Jenna. Actually, the reality is I'm saying this as somebody who's running for U.S. president. Some of these solutions have to be delivered through the market. Actually, in my most recent past career, I started Strive to compete with BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard precisely because there wasn't a market alternative that was expressly designed to push companies back to focusing on products and services for profit. So that's why I founded Strive. But I also think that there's a big unaddressed component in government. And so a lot of the federal regulations that Biden has changed in the last several years tilt the scales towards promoting ESG through the so-called private market. They changed the rules of the actual retirement funds under the Department of Labor regulations to say that they used to be required to just advance investment return for retirees. Now it says they're able to take into account collateral benefits other than investment return, such as climate change. Those are the exact words they use, not mine. So I'd immediately roll back those regulations through the Department of Labor, through the SEC, which now regulates public companies, now effectively weaving ESG factors into the SEC regulations. I'm actually going to issue an executive order, Jenna, across the entire federal government, all branches. We're done mandating the measurement or reporting of carbon emissions in any context. That's actually something that is easily something that the next U.S. president can do. And then some of this has to be done through the states as well. There's Republican leaders who are expressly, I think, standing by idly as states like California and New York and other blue states are using their pension fund money 
to effectively drag everyone else along for the ride. We can't stand by and, and watch that happen passively. These are government actors at the state level that are using pension fund money to vote for policies that most Americans actually disagree with. And also, more importantly, which don't advance the best financial interests of those Americans. So I do think, Jenna, it's important that we have a president, frankly, who understands these issues deeply as more than just talking points, really has first personal understanding that the threats to liberty today are complex. It's not just big government. It's a hybrid of government and private enterprise that together do what neither could do on its own. That's something that it can't just be a slogan. It has to be something that in these complicated times, we can't recite slogans we memorized in 1980. We have to see that clearly for what it is and have a spine to act. And I think I'm coming into this race as an outsider with that first personal knowledge, but also as an outsider who's unencumbered to actually cut through a lot of that and get the job done. Well, you've certainly been uh, speaking the uh, kind of unspoken <laughs> rules going against, you know, a lot of what uh, the GOP party has been afraid to say. And that's one of the things that I really highly respect about you and like to see on uh, this campaign trail and uh, forthcoming on the debate stage. Looking forward to that uh, coming up in August. And so from the perspective of um, you know, someone who's seeking the highest office in the executive branch, what are your thoughts on the Fiscal Responsibility Act um, that Speaker McCarthy negotiated? I'm against it. I was uh, prompt to say so as soon as I heard about the so-called debt ceiling deal. I'm not taking anything away from Kevin McCarthy here. It's not a jab at him. This is just about thinking on the timescales of history rather than on the timescales of two-year election cycles. The IRS has $78 billion now instead of $80 billion, still arming its new agents with the weaponization of government to turn against disfavored organizations, Christian organizations, religious organizations, conservatives, as the IRS has been doing. Now they're more empowered than ever to actually do it. All these so-called clean energy incentives driving a climate transition strategy that is a farce because China isn't actually – marching to that beat one iota, even as we in the United States shackle ourselves. So I could go on about what all's in that bill, but I'm dead set against it. You know, I think work requirements for Medicaid have to be table stakes. We're a country built on hard work. Democrats under Bill Clinton supported more aggressive work requirements than are included in this bill today, passed by Republicans included. So I'm in the camp of saying, I know this is difficult to say, it made a lot of people upset in the Republican Party when I first started saying it, you know, others have since followed suit. This is something that I would vote no on if I were in Congress. But it's also an example of why I'm in this race, is that we can't have feeble leadership where when we talk a big game about actually reviving the economy or fighting our national debt, when push comes to shove, we have weak hands. And I think, again, it's going to take an outsider, somebody who's a product of that system, I don't think is going to be effective in playing that game. This is the result you get from professional politicians playing that game. I think it's going to take a, a fresh outsider. I think you get to be an outsider once. I'm the outsider in this race. You get to come in and actually do what needs to be done on the timescales of history rather than by being captured by the short-term, often blunt lobbying forces that get even Republican politicians, I'm sorry to say, to behave the way that we do. 
Yeah, well, speaking of being the outsider, uh, the field is certainly widening uh, Vivek Ramaswamy for the presidential race. Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida has announced uh, since the last time you and I spoke. And then uh, reports are suggesting that uh, former Governor Chris Christie, also former governor and former Vice President Mike Pence, are soon uh, to join in. So, you know, kind of what is your perspective on the widening field and how that impacts the GOP primary overall? Well, look, I am a big believer in competition. Competition breeds strength. So I'm glad Governor DeSantis is, you know, has a strong policy record in Florida. And I think bringing some of his voice into this will make the race stronger. I think the same goes for a lot of the other people who have recently entered or are entering. So I welcome the. It's going to make the party better. It's going to make the country and our movement stronger. But I do think it is going to take somebody who is unencumbered as an outsider to actually deliver. Look, I think that the standard move for all of these governors, DeSantis and and Doug Bogram and and Tim Scott and Mike Pence, all included, the standard procedure is you go bring a tin can, take a hat in hand, ask a bunch of donors for permission to run. That's not the approach I took. The approach I took is we took an eight-figure sum of my hard-earned money, we lived the American dream, reinvested back in the country, and be unconstrained as to what we're actually able to say without anybody's special interests getting in the way. And I think that even if you look at the constraints about what even Republicans and prominent conservatives are or aren't able to say about China, that's another example of how Republicans and many prominent conservatives, even Elon Musk, I was talking about this last night, Jamie Dimon, others who have a prominent voice here at home, have their hands tied when the CCP ultimately dictates whether or not you get to make money by entering the Chinese market. That's the analogy for business executives that I use for politicians in the Republican Party who have their hands tied by those same donors that have their hands tied by Chinese interests. And so I wanted to be completely independent of anybody telling me what I can and cannot say. I think that's what our base is hungry for. I'm traveling to New Hampshire later today. I'll be in Iowa this weekend. What I see on the ground is people are hungry for a leader who is unconstrained in speaking truth. Truth is ultimately our North Star, not somebody's self-interested campaign finding its way through Republican hands into a debt ceiling deal or into modulated statements about what you can and cannot say about declaring independence from China. I don't play that game. The way we do this is we speak independently. And I think that's different from a lot of, it's not their personal fault, but it's just the way the game is played, Jenna, the influence of money on politics. A lot of the existing professional politicians, I think every one of them in this race is constrained in a way that I'm not. And I think that's what makes me different. And and I think that that's what, you know, made President Trump so popular in 2016 was that difference. And now, you know, you've uh, campaigned on, you know, being America First 2.0 and kind of taking that to the next level. And in just about the last minute I have with you, Vivek Ramaswamy, um, you are joining a Twitter space or you have a Twitter space. I think it's tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, what do you anticipate for that? Oh, sure. Yeah, I just was was tweeting last night and said, you know what, let's just host a host of space and have a discussion. Yeah, I was I was really disappointed when I saw Elon Musk's comments kowtowing to China earlier this week, saying that we're conjoined twins and that he disfavors declaring independence from China or breaking our economic dependence only after his comments about saying Taiwan should rejoin China. So I said, you know what, let's have an open discussion. I invited Elon to join. I don't know if he will, but we need more open debate and unconstrained. 
And I said, CCP officials can listen in, too. We're going to have the conversation. (laughs) Well, that's great. Well, Vivek, looking forward to that. And uh, for anyone who wants to join, that is a Twitter space. And uh, you've said that there's no pre-scripted questions this time. So if you want to ask Vivek a question, join the space. Uh, Thanks so much. As always, Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, You can go to Vivek2024.com. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene made a very important announcement yesterday afternoon. She tweeted, I'm excited to share the good news that just as I promised, the January 6th tapes are being released. She said that Speaker McCarthy has given three journalists uh, unfettered access to the January 6th tapes and their reporting on it will start. She said, quote, this is the transparency the American people deserve. And I look forward to their reporting. One of those journalists is uh, my good friend, John Solomon, who is the editor in chief of JustTheNews.com. And I have personally known uh, John Solomon for years. And I have to tell all of you who are listening, um, justthenews.com is an amazing outlet. Um, I can count on one hand the number of reporters that when I was working for President Trump, I actually trusted to not only keep their word, but to report things accurately. And John Solomon is at the very top of that. So um, I'm very pleased to welcome him this morning. Good morning, John. And um, what can we expect from the, uh, the tapes now being released to you and a couple of other people? Yeah, good morning, Jenna. Uh, Well, we're going to have many days of this. This is probably going to stretch on for several weeks. We're going to try to take one topic at a time, do all the reporting, and show. We've been looking at these tapes for several weeks, taking leads from uh, Capitol Police officers and Capitol Police leaders who told us of failures that the January 6th committee was unwilling to explore or fix. So we're going to bring them to light, and tonight we'll kick things off. We are going to show the moment that um, the Capitol Police evacuated uh, Speaker Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi at the time, uh, uh, through a secret tunnel. And there, people are going to see some pretty extraordinary behavior. It's going to look more like a Hollywood movie set than a, an escape route for uh, the Speaker. You're going to see some behavior that is going to raise questions, not only about Speaker Pelosi and her family's judgment, but also uh, the judgment of police officers who allowed certain activities to go on on what should have been a hurried escape from the Capitol. So people are going to get to see that. That's something that the January 6th committee did not allow. And then over the several next several weeks, we're going to show other security failures. Because to a person, when I interview a Capitol Police officer, a Capitol Police leader, someone in the security apparatus of the Capitol, or in the larger federal law enforcement community, I keep hearing the same uh, utterance. We are no safer at the U.S. Capitol today than we were on January 5th, 2021. In other words, the security failures have not been learned. They have not been fixed. And one of America's great institutions of freedom remains vulnerable. And uh, January 6th was really a spontaneous riot. Imagine if terrorists were actually attacking the Capitol. The vulnerabilities you're going to see over the next few weeks are going to make people very, very disturbed. Well, and John Solomon uh, from JustTheNews.com, where can we see this? Is this going to be on your website? Uh, Where can people go to find all of these reports? At 6 o'clock tonight, we'll unveil the first video with some of the explanation. I will walk people through it. It'll be on my Just the News, No Noise television show on Real America's Voice. We will also have, at the same time, a simultaneous story going up on JustTheNews.com. We'll have the video footage up on Rumble and on our own uh, video player. 
so that people can watch it, make up their own mind. They'll hear from some of the experts. Uh, Congresswoman Green will be on the show tonight. We expect some security experts to be on the show tonight uh, and uh, have a really robust discussion about what's on the tape and why it matters. Uh, There's going to always be a debate about who did what on January 6th, but there should be no debate about the security of the Capitol. And unfortunately, the January 6th Democrat-led committee kept that conversation from being had. Why? Because it was a failure of Nancy Pelosi and her security team. We're going to be able to show the American public what needs to be fixed and hopefully create a roadmap for people to get it done before anything else terrible happens at the Capitol. And John Solomon, in in your viewing of all of this uh, footage so far, um, what can what is your opinion of uh, how the uh, some of this footage was concealed or really you know produced Hollywood style? I mean, that, that's the January sixth mm-hmm. committee actually hired. I think it wasn't it an ABC producer yeah. to go in and you know put all they of did. this up and and edit this and everything. Um, what is your opinion on the contrast of what you've seen? compared to what was shown to the American people for two years saying, you know, this is all that matters and this is what's relevant? Well, I think the the key thing is uh, tomorrow, uh, day two of the release, we're going to show you what the Capitol, what what the Capitol Police video actually showed versus what was shown to the American public during the January 6th committee. There's going to be some remarkable changes that people are going to detect. I don't want to give it away yet because we're still doing some reporting. But uh, there were things done at the January 6th committee uh, in the presentation of video that aren't on the tape. And I think that people will see that and have some questions about the integrity of the process that the January 6th committee used to try to inflame or inform, I'm not sure which it is yet, uh, the American public with what they did during their hearings last summer. When you take a look at the full body of the evidence, and I've now looked through hundreds of hours of videotape through various sources, some of this uh, approved by uh, Speaker McCarthy, he made good on his promise to continue to get this out. When, you, when we look at the sum total of it, you're going to see what so many experts have said in my earlier stories when I was working with documents. The January 6th attack was completely preventable. Intelligence failures, security planning failures, uh, and in one instance on Monday, people will see an an unbelievable jaw-dropping security lapse that allowed hundreds of people to go into the Capitol uncontested. So you're going to see on the outside officers trying hard to keep people from coming out. There's violence. They're being subjected to violence in some instances. In another area of the location, because of a terrible failure by Capitol Police and security, a a, a door was left wide open, and uh, hundreds, hundreds of people go into the Capitol uncontested. This is something that Senator Ron Johnson's been talking about. We've secured the video footage he's referring to. We're going to make it public on Monday. These are jaw-dropping security failures, and because they've not been highlighted, there's a grave danger that the Capitol Police hasn't fixed itself, that it just moved on from the embarrassment without fixing the issues that are, are sitting there. So I think that's going to be the big takeaway. People are going to say, how could one of the most important institutions in America be so weakly protected when we provide $600 million a year to this police force? Right. And I think one of the questions from um, from a lot of people, at least that I've heard, is, you know, was this an intentional security failure? And, you know, is there any evidence that you've uncovered to show that, you know, perhaps this was something where uh, the Capitol Police were complicit in, you know, opening the doors and saying, you know, just come on in, you know, some of those things that we've been hearing in the media? I don't, uh, to date, I haven't found something that would say, hey, there's a smoking gun that this was a staged event. I think what you see, and I, I did uh, more than 25 years ago, or 20 years ago plus, 
I did a lot of the reporting after the 9-11 attacks, and of course they were much more severe, much, much more severe. We lost so much life that day. But there was a theme when my reporting started up. When George Bush first announced the attacks and Connie Rice did her first briefing, she said, no one saw this coming. And the answer is a lot of people in the CIA and the FBI saw it coming, and they failed to connect the dots, and they failed to work together, and they failed to protect America from another attack that could have been potentially stopped. That was the ultimate conclusion of the 9-11 Commission. I think you're going to see the same things here. You're going to see from my earlier reporting, we know that uh, significant intelligence came in to the intelligence division of the Capitol Police, from the FBI, the Homeland Security Department, the U.S. Marshal Service, the Metropolitan Police. It warned starting on December 21st there was going to be a severe attack on the Capitol. People were talking about violence, trapping members in, confronting the leadership of the Congress, uh, bringing guns. Despite that incredibly precise intelligence, by the way, focused on the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and others, they even had the right groups that they were, the intelligence got bottled up at the, at the intelligence division of the U.S. Capitol. It didn't get to the decision makers up above. It's a catastrophic failure. That sets in motion a series of things. For instance, um, it keeps uh, more civil disturbance units from being deployed that day. They had less than half of their civil riot uh, riot police ready to go that day. If they had, if the riot if the riot police unit chief knew there was going to be this threat level, he would have had a lot more people there. It also uh, handicaps Chief Sun, who was then the police chief, from making a more compelling argument that he should bring in the National Guard. He wanted the National Guard. Nancy Pelosi's team said, no, we don't like the optics. If he had had this intelligence at his disposal, and we've interviewed him, he said he never did, uh, he could have made a much more compelling argument. There could have been a taller, razor-sharp fence that could have been put around the Capitol. The number of officers deployed could have been doubled or tripled because a lot of them were at home that day. I think it's going to turn out to be a series of bureaucratic failures. Now, in the midst of that bureaucratic failures, people are going to see today how one Democrat, Nancy Pelosi, and her family sought to capitalize on it by making a video uh, montage of her escape, uh, the sort of thing you don't want happening during the evacuation. You want everyone focused on the safe evacuation of a high-ranking official. Instead, you're going to see basically a Hollywood production going through the escape route. And it raises another question. The escape route was being filmed, which means it could be potentially compromised by the video footage that the Nancy Pelosi family members took that day. Again, bureaucratic failures upon bureaucratic failures at the Capitol. Yeah, and and John Solomon, that also raises, um, I I think, the other interesting point that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene actually responded to on uh, social media when uh, asked the question, you know, why isn't all of the footage just being released to the public, which was the initial uh, question to Speaker McCarthy. And, you know, I think that what you're what you're suggesting here is that there are a lot of um, security issues still and things that um, just for for capital security and national security can't necessarily be released to the public. Yeah, Jenna, that is such a good point. Listen, we all want to be responsible Americans. I want to be a responsible journalist. There is, even in this security route, very sensitive information that normally wouldn't be filmed, wouldn't be out there, uh, that could give a bad person in the future a leg up on a future attack on the Capitol. We're going to take very serious provisions tonight. You were going to self-disclose that we blurred out some parts of the video. Not, because, by the way, they're not newsworthy. The, the news is what Nancy Pelosi, her family, and her security detail allowed to happen. But uh, the other parts of how the Capitol is protected, where cameras are located, what escape routes are used, we're going to blur out, and it's for this reason. When you look at the intelligence, I previously reported on this, the bad guys 
We're looking for precise information on the tunnels and the escape routes that would be used. So if they could find them, they could then confront the lawmakers, maybe create a heinous crime in those tunnels. Knowing that bad people have that intention, and I'm sure the people that were intercepted before January 6th aren't the only ones with those intentions. I'm sure terrorists and other bad people would like to have that. Uh, We don't want to hand that to them, and that's why you can't release all of it. Also, there are things on the tapes that can be illusory, meaning they look like something, but when you do the reporting, you find out it's something else. We want to do this responsibly. It's going to take a long time. It's going to take weeks to get all the footage out that's meaningful to the American public. But Marjorie Taylor Greene, Speaker McCarthy, and so many other responsible lawmakers, they're right. There are things here that putting it all out would be dangerous to America. Yeah, and, and certainly, you know, as um, as a lawyer, I mean, I would not be an advocate for any of um, the shielding of some of the perhaps exculpatory evidence from defense attorneys, right. uh, for example. But when you're talking about uh, that and having a defense attorney in, in, you know, the privacy of a skiff looking over potentially exculpatory material versus just putting it out to the public for anyone, those are two very separate interests, very separate right. uh, questions, and, and also very separate constitutional questions, frankly. And one of the things, John Solomon, that I always really appreciate about your reporting is that I know this is such a um, really intense and, and frankly, you know, emotional story for a lot of Americans and certainly Republicans yes. that have seen how a lot of the system has been weaponized against so many people that were just there peacefully um, protesting and had every right to be there. And then, of course, there, you know, there are events that were just absolutely horrific. And there, you know, I mean, I remember watching it just being horrified that people were actually yes. going in and storming the Capitol and committing some of these federal offenses that deserve to uh, be prosecuted. And I think that we can have the perspective of truth-telling and not just getting wrapped up into one narrative or the other and kind of this binary between um, you know, promoting one story over another. And so how are you, um, just from a journalist perspective, looking at this and wanting to tell the truth of the story instead of just playing into maybe one side or the other's narrative? People are going to see very early on in this project that the Democrats tried to substitute emotion for fact, that they tried to fool the American people into thinking and feeling things that may not have been on the tape. I think the difference that we're going to do is we're going to trust the American people. They are smart enough to make their own mind. We're going to give them neutral facts and let people make up their own mind rather than try to hijack their opinion. Both sides in this debate have tried to uh, create very emotional things uh, because it is an emotional subject on both sides of the political aisle. I think facts are a, a stubborn thing. They're, they're, they're persistent. They don't come with emotion. They just come with facts. And I think when people see the footage responsibly um, uh, presented and with experts explaining what's actually on there, they'll be able to make a, a better informed decision, and a decision that they've been deprived of because of the way the January 6th committee went about its work. The January 6th committee wanted to create a Broadway production and, and, come, and force people to come to a specific conclusion. These tapes will allow people to come to their own conclusion, and I think if we do it right, uh, uh, defendants will benefit, lawyers will benefit, the Capitol Police will benefit, lawmakers in both parties will benefit, and most importantly, the American public will benefit because they'll have facts that they've been deprived of to make a more informed decision about what happened and also 
what we need to do in the future to protect the great institution that is the U.S. Capitol. Well, funny how truth works for everyone's benefit <laughs> and, and all the facts <laughs> work for everyone's right. <laughs> benefit. Yes. Well, John Solomon, uh, justthenews.com and also uh, your show on Real America's Voice tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern. And we will be following that. Always appreciate you joining. Thank you so much for your reporting, for your hard work and also for your friendship over the years. Really appreciate it. That is all the time that we have this morning for Jenna Ellis in the morning. And I will be with you tomorrow morning. If you want to reach out, Jenna at AFR.net, and I will see you tomorrow morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.